Welcome to Time and Tide, Nantucket's Maritime History Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Schwanfelder, Maritime Studies Instructor for Egan Maritime Institute. Listen along for stories from the high seas that rise from the depths of despair to the peak of human hope and salvation. This podcast is brought to you by Egan Maritime Institute. Through our programs and educational opportunities, we work to inspire the appreciation and preservation of Nantucket's maritime culture and seafaring legacy. Time and tide wait for no man. Welcome, everybody, and thank you so much for joining me on the very first episode of the Time and Tide podcast. Before I dive into the story, I want to start out with a little bit of context on where this project is coming from. Like most of us, we've been having to adjust quickly on a day-to-day basis in a lot of ways, big and small, to the current coronavirus situation. It's unfolding rapidly. It's unfolding around the world. Our community here on Nantucket is a very different place than what it was just two and a half weeks ago. And personally, my work structure, having a main office and working in the schools, has totally changed. So I've found myself thinking of ways to constructively fill my days and get my work done. I started setting up a home office. The office turned into a home recording studio. I broke out some of the instruments, and some old books on my workshelf and pitched an idea to my boss. It's an idea that I've had for a long time of a a shipwreck story podcast, a way to tell these great stories that we have where I work that don't necessarily see the light of day or that are only really read in circles of people that are pretty enthusiastic about the subject. Uh, So I pitched my boss the idea. She was great. She said to run with it. Big thank you to Pauline. Shout out. And here I am kicking off the very first episode. Now, there are literally hundreds of shipwreck tales from Nantucket alone. And within these stories, within these narratives, are intertwined the stories of the lifesavers who put their own lives on the line to help those in need out on the sea in the most troubling of times. Picture midnight in the dead of winter, snowstorm blowing all around you, you're wrecked on the shoals. 20 miles out to sea, and all hope is gone. There were people who put their lives on the line to go out and save these sailors, and some of the stories are uh, truly heroic. Some of these stories are slightly mundane and whimsical, and some of them are incredibly tragic. But we need to listen to these stories, and I think now more than ever with the current situation, Because they show us that even in the depths of despair, that there's always hope, there's always a beacon of light on the horizon, and we can prevail together, even in the darkest of times. Episode 1, Skipper Chase and the Wreck of the H.P. Kirkham. To start... A brief summary of date, time, and location. At 7 p.m. on the night of January 20th, 1892, the three-masted schooner H.P. Kirkham encountered a violent winter squall and grounded on the Rosencrown Shoal, approximately 15 miles southeast of Nantucket's Great Point. 
The seven-person Coast Gata Station life-saving crew launched their surf boat on the morning of January 21st and did not return until 26 hours later on the morning of January 22nd. It is heralded as one of the most dramatic and courageous rescues in the history of the United States Life-Saving Service. The source material for this episode is drawn from the Egan Maritime Library and the Shipwreck and Life-Saving Museum collection. It has been synthesized into narrative form. For a complete bibliography, please see the notes in the podcast description. When Captain Benjamin Peace retired from his post as the first keeper of the Cascada Life Station, he recommended as his successor a giant of a man named Walter Nelson Chase. It was a wise choice, as government officials were soon to learn. Within a year, Skipper Chase had so whipped his team into shape, they were considered one of the best boat crews on the eastern seaboard, an achievement made all the more significant in the Great Rescue of 1892. In the decades to follow, it would be referred to as the Wreck of the Kirkham, one of the most famous rescues in the history of the United States Life-Saving Service. Near midnight on January 20th, a bitter northerly wind arose, sweeping the great point of Nantucket with driving sleet and rain. Though Skipper Chase had three of his most able men sick with the grip and convalescing at home, he ordered the crew out for the regular beach patrols. Among them, a young substitute named Roland Perkins had just reported back to duty from a lengthy battle with pneumonia. However, not wanting to risk the stern eye of his beloved skipper, Perky as he was known, donned his oilskins and stepped to the task with his mates. At the same time, unbeknownst to those on land, the three-masted schooner H.P. Kirkham was battling her way through heavy seas. Traveling from Halifax with a crew of seven and a load of salt and pickled fish, the Kirkham, headed for the sanctuary of New York Harbor, became lost in the blinding sleet and rain. As the crew battled the rising wind and seas in a desperate attempt to avoid the dangerous shoals at the east end of the island, the most deadly of them all, the Rosencrown Shoal, lay directly in their path. It was seven o'clock when the Kirkham struck, coming to a sudden, grinding halt on the Rosencrown Shoal. As the cargo shifted, her crew was pitched from their places. Overhead, the great mast shuddered, and as the wind shredded the sails and the heavy seas rolled, seven terrified sailors strained at the ship's railings to peer into the gale for some sight of land. Fifteen miles from shore, at the farthest edge of hope, nearly beyond the limits of human endurance, A portion of the H.P. Kirkham's bow was torn away, and the big ship settled low on the shoal. With the decks awash, the crew fired flares. Then, fearing their signals might never be seen, the men dragged an old feather mattress from their quickly flooding quarters below deck, and with enormous effort, managed to wrestle it high in the rigging, where they ignited it. They waited, to be rescued or to die. But incredibly, the mattress was still bone dry. When touched with flame, it exploded with fury, the flash seen by the lighthouse keeper at Sankety Head Light at the east end of Nantucket. 
By dawn, the sleet had turned to snow, yet the keeper managed to confirm with his spyglass the three tiny splinters that were the Kirkham's masts. With a hand-cranked telephone newly installed by the life-saving service, he called Skipper Chase at the Cascada station, informing him of the situation. At 9 a.m. on the morning of the 21st, after carting their rescue skiff from the court of the bay on the Nantucket Sound side, across the Great Point Strand to the open ocean side, Skipper Chase and his crew launched from the east shore of the island. Young Perky took his place with the port oar on the second thwart as they swept into the storm. Skipper Chase recorded, Before we put out, I'm calling for help from one of the steamship tugs. I'm going to ask them to meet us at the shoal by nightfall. I know the wind and the tide will be unfavorable for our return, so we'll sorely need a tow back to shore. With the sail rigged for the following wind, Chase and his crew made bass rip in good time. But the skipper's earlier fears were realized when they spotted the Kirkham, still some six miles distant. It was too risky to head to her in a straight line, so Chase, instead, took a line more from the Great Round Shoal lightship to the schooner. If the wind came up in their faces, he knew he could always give up and take his men back to the lightship for safety. By then, however, Skipper Chase could see the distant shapes of the men on the Kirkham clinging to her rigging. The hull of the schooner had settled almost underwater, with only a bit of her railing showing on her windward side. It was there Chase chose to make his approach. There would be no turning back now, not with lives at risk and with the wind remaining favorable. During the next hour, Chase's training of his men would be paramount. Not only did the skipper, standing at his post in the stern, have to know how to maneuver his boat, but he had to be concerned with the racing tide, the surge of the waves against the wreck, and the possibility of becoming entangled in the schooner's rigging. There was no sign of the steamship tug. They were alone, out of sight of land, one misstep, and everyone would die. Carefully, the skipper eased his bounding rescue boat close. At 20 yards from her railing, he dropped anchor, signaling to his bowman, Jesse Eldridge, to toss the heaving stick in line to the stricken crew on the ship. As Chase watched, the desperate men of the schooner began to pull on the rescue line Eldridge had tossed them, drawing his surfboat dangerously close. One more wave and they'd be smashed against the wreck or swamped. The boat lost, the lifesavers drowned. But with a nod to Eldridge, Chase watched as the seasoned bowman took out a knife, held it high, and threatened to cut the line. The great figure of the lifesaver's commander, his bellowing voice, and the menacing knife had an instantaneous effect. The noise was fearsome. There was no yelling to them. Only the threat of the knife and leaving without them quieted the men on board. With the crew of the Kirkham now realizing the line needed to be secured to their vessel and that only Chase could determine the proper time to come in close, the rescue proceeded. As one wave passed, Eldridge hauled on the line, pulling the rescue boat close enough to take one of the schooner's crew aboard. Perky and the others were signaled then to pull quickly away over the next surging swell. Skipper Chase said afterwards, Poor fellows had been in the topsails all night and had been 15 hours on the wreck. 
They had about given themselves up for lost and didn't see us until we were nearly down on them. We figured on their dropping into the boat when the waves lifted us up. It was close figuring, as the rail would be down six feet underwater one minute and then that much above us on the next wave. They had to time their jump for the right moment. If they had jumped when we were under, by Jove, that would have done it. Wave by wave, the Cascada men crept close and then away, taking one sailor at a time from the railing of the sinking ship. In minutes, all seven men were aboard, wrapped in blankets and tucked beneath the seats, as Chase pulled up his anchor, ordered that his sail and mast be cut away, and began the difficult job of extracting his boat from the shoal. The rescue boat now contained seven men from the Cascada crew and seven frozen half-dead survivors from the Kirkham. The sandy bottom of the shoal could be seen at every wave trough. For three hours more, the Kirkham broke apart and then, with a sonorous boom, fell into the sea as Chase and his crew struggled to maneuver themselves to safer depths. There was still no sign of the tug, but Chase wasn't surprised. The seas had grown far too rough for a larger vessel to come close. The sun had set, the temperature dropped to 18 degrees above zero, and the wind and tide were against them. Chase ordered to his men, I have no choice but to drop anchor and wait out the tide. You all are too exhausted. With every human instinct crying for shore and the shelter of home, Chase remained firm. Waves broke continuously over the boat. Snow squalls tore at the men, but Chase let them rest no longer than 10 minutes at a time, having them bail water to keep warm. Now and again, the beckoning flash of the Sankety Lighthouse could be seen, but from nine o'clock that night until three o'clock the next morning, it seemed as though God himself had forgotten them. Just as all seemed hopeless, the tides began to turn. Chase's eyes flashed with pride, and as the wind slackened, they started back. It was 11 o'clock on the morning of January 22nd that the Cascada crew was spotted from the Sconset Bluff. Walter Chase had planned for such a moment. Having defied government orders, he painted his rescue boat red so that when the distinctive red boat was spotted from the Sconset Bluff, word spread fast. Soon, everyone in the tiny fishing village was on the shore to help. Not a word was spoken. The mood was subdued. The rescue had taken 26 hours, a marathon of agony and bravery. No one had expected to see Chase and his crew return. When they did, however, the people of Sconset were quick to help with the survivors, hurrying them to warm hearths and dry clothes. True to his nature and his training, Walter Chase was sure to properly return his rescue boat to its station before he released his crew and took himself to the nearby home of his uncle. As Chase remembered afterward, my uncle gave me a cup of steaming coffee, but I was shaken so much from the cold I had to go out of doors to drink it. One year later, the men of the Cascada Station were awarded medals of honor by the Congress of the United States. All but one of the crew attended. Roland Perkins, having fallen ill from exposure during the rescue, died just three months afterward. 
The medals were presented at a public meeting held in the Unitarian Church on January 8, 1893. The Inquirer and Mirror's account described the appropriate exercises as an enthusiastic gathering filling the auditorium to capacity. Lieutenant John Dennett, United States Navy, Assistant Inspector of the 2nd Life-Saving District, presented the medals to Captain Chase, Surfman Jesse H. Eldridge, Charles B. Cathcart, Josiah Gould, John Nyman, and George Flood. Skipper Chase accepted the medal for Roland Perkins and gave it to his mother. In presenting the awards, Reverend Myron Dudley, pastor of the North Congregational Church, read the official commendation from Charles Foster, Secretary of the Treasury Department, which concluded with the following. For more than 24 hours, day and night, you and your crew bravely battled with the winter storm. At every point you displayed superb seamanship, unerring judgment, and dauntless courage. I am assured by seafaring persons competent to judge of your great work that it was one of the most remarkable in the history of such achievements. It therefore affords me extraordinary pleasure to be the medium of the award of this medal, designed to bear testimony to your skill and good judgment, your unfaltering fidelity to duty, and your heroic disregard for danger. Austin Strong, the playwright and summer resident of Nantucket, was a great admirer of Skipper Chase and wrote a moving tribute when he died, a portion of which read, Few Nantucketers outside his contemporaries knew his story. Many had forgotten it. He was taken for granted by the oncoming generations, an accustomed figure hardly noticed, drifting among us remote and shadowy, almost unseen. Yet there was a day when this quiet, self-effacing giant aroused the admiration and gratitude of his countrymen everywhere. It took a lot of pleading to persuade the skipper to fish out from a dusty lower drawer, a shabby leather case, with the lid torn from its hinges. In it lay a broad vermilion ribbon as bright as spilled blood, and attached to it was a shining gold medal, which the United States Congress had unanimously voted him for heroic action on the high seas. Hope you all enjoyed the show. At this point in the episode, I invite my lovely wife, Katie Kayser. Now Katie Schwanfelder, correction. <laughs> Good catch. Katie was born here, third generation on her mother's side. Her father, Captain Pete, very salty fellow, longtime fisherman, salvager, diver. Katie and I really share a love of Nantucket history, Nantucket stories, and maritime history in particular. So I am really excited to have her come join me and share a few thoughts and ask some questions about the episode we heard today. Katie, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. What did you think about Old Skipper Chase and the wreck of the Kirkham? I mean, first of all, this story is incredible. Thinking about the bravery of these men and what they did in the gnarliest of conditions is just, it's hard to even fathom going out to save people they've never met. And it got me thinking more about the history of life-saving on Nantucket and really, I guess one of my big questions is when in our history did Nantucket realize there was a need for this kind of service to have people stationed on the beach looking out for shipwrecks and then willing to go save people in trouble? By the 18th century, the United States is a seafaring nation. In our corner of the world, we have 
very treacherous waters with the shoals that surround the island and just the weather and the fog and a number of situations that make it a pretty difficult place to sail around. So there were a lot of shipwrecks. There were a lot of sailors that were in distress and that died. Uh, And in 1786, a group of Boston citizens formed what was called the Massachusetts Humane Society. It was a private organization, and all along the coast of Massachusetts, there was a network of huts that were unmanned. See, I never knew that, that it started out with just huts on the beach that people could find refuge. That's amazing. They were small sheds, uh, served as places of refuge. They also housed rescue equipment used by volunteers in case of wrecks. 1848 saw the first federal involvement in the life-saving business. Uh, They used the state humane societies as models. During the latter half of the 19th century, larger boathouses and life-saving stations with man crews began to be built and operated along the coastline. The U.S. Life-Saving Service was officially founded in 1878 and then merged with the Revenue Cutter Service to form the Coast Guard in 1915. All right, so 1915 is when the Coast Guard was formed mm-hmm. officially. Never knew that either. Yeah. Amazing. Another question I had was about the boat that they used for this rescue. I cannot imagine all these men grouped together in this little boat in the elements in the winter and the part where Skipper Chase decides to drop the anchor and wait out the tide. I'm just picturing all these men wanting to be back on the shore and obviously they must have really respected Skipper Chase to listen. But what was that boat like? I mean, I'm just, I'm fascinated. Yeah, these were surf boats that were designed and built by the life-saving service to certain specs. Now, there were different models for different areas, and but for the most part, they're double-ended rowboats pointed on either end. The skipper or the head of the boat would be on the steering oar, most likely, so acting like a rudder in the stern. And then the oarsman would be on the thwarts in the main part of the vessel rowing for power. Uh, These did have sailing rigs, a lot of them. This one did because they sailed out to the Kirkham, and then it wasn't favorable on the way back. So that's when Chase commanded his crew to cut away the rig, and they had to row back. It's about 11 miles back from the Rosencrown to Sconset, approximately where they were at. And yeah, these boats are probably, this was probably a Monomoy-style surfboat, so let's say 25 feet approximately. We have a couple at the Shipwreck and Lifesaving Museum. But for a crew of seven lifesavers, and then to throw in seven more distressed sailors, and they were sort of, the account says that they were basically sort of put in the bottom of the boat, and the boat's filling up with water from the waves and from the weather, and so they're bailing out that water. It would be a pretty dire situation. Exposure and hypothermia and things would be very real, real threats. It's amazing. And just Skipper Chase was so smart to make that decision because, as you told us, they all survived the initial rescue, which is incredible. And another interesting thing about the boat, they make note of it in the story that I told, but just to elaborate on a little bit, Skipper Chase chose to paint his boat red. Now, the life-saving service dictated that all boats were to be painted white, and there was a crew from the Muskegon life-saving station that was almost lost, the whole crew, because they were caught in the winter in an ice flow. And the ice is white and the boat is white. So they weren't spotted very easily. So Chase defied orders and painted his boat bright red so he could be visible from a distance. Thank goodness for that. Pretty and cool. Picturing the boat showing up and all the people coming down to help them is really a, a lovely yeah, thing to think it's about. It's a great image. It is. Wow. 
Well, I just have to say, watching you work on this the last few weeks and seeing your passions for the history and music and all things maritime come together for the podcast has been really cool. I'm so grateful. And I think on behalf of a lot of our Nantucketers, I'm just so grateful that we are going to have these stories preserved and brought to life through your podcast. Thanks, babe. Not just for us, but for future generations. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we want the listeners to join our little community, follow us on social media, and write in with questions. They could message us, and you could probably address some of those questions on the podcast, too. Yeah, that'd be awesome. We're going to put this out. This is the first episode. We're going to have all the the main platforms it's going to be out on, but find us on Instagram. We're going to have a website, and we'll have a way for you guys all to contact us with any questions and thoughts, ideas. We would really love to hear from you. So thank you all for joining us. This was a real blast, and I look forward to putting out more episodes. Uh, Please tune in next time. To learn more about Egan Maritime's mission and how to offer your support, visit www.eganmaritime.org. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the show. Follow us on Instagram at Time and Tide Nantucket and also on our website, www.timeandtidenantucket.com. Until next time, fair winds and following seas. Thank you.